and welcome to Small Town Mysteries, where we talk about shit that went down in these small towns, shit that's unsolved, and shit that led to more shit. Except none of these stories actually involve shit so far. Stay tuned to find out if this is the episode where we finally talk about shit. I'm Kate, here with Christine. Hello. And Rachel. Hello. We both have some excellent stories to share with us this week. So I think, uh, Christine, you were going to go first. Just dive right into it. Okay. Sounds good. This week, I'm going to be talking about Melissa Jenkins. This was one of the cases I found kind of doing a random search. I randomized 1 through 50 and then got Vermont. And then I went on a random town generator. And this was the town that popped up. So it actually turned out to be a pretty interesting case. She was a Vermont teacher who was lured away from her home, beaten, and strangled to death by a married couple in 2012. Oh. Oh. Yeah. Oh, dear. So a lot. It's, yeah. That was quite the sentence. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it it does sum it up. It's a very sad case. Like, couples that kill together are crazy like i just don't understand it's not common but so i feel like they're just bizarre cases all around no i know but i just hate when somebody who's a horrible person finds another buddy another buddy (laughs) someone else who is just like wow like that sounds like a great idea and then they murder together like it's just weird Well, yeah i like i wonder about that like how terrible people always find the other terrible people to hang out with and commit crimes with like i wonder about that like it's not like you can put it on your tinder profile who's the partner that one day is like hey want to commit a crime and the other one who's like i was just thinking we should commit a crime like i do you know what i'm saying like how does that conversation go how do you realize you're with someone else who will commit horrific crimes with you no i know it must be awkward the first time like figuring it out how does that come up in a relationship is that premarital <laughs> like it's funny that you mention tinder because they did meet online which i'll get into later oh but. no <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah um okay anyway melissa jenkins was a 33 year old school teacher and single mother who was born in berlin vermont and attended school in saint johnsbury a small Vermont town of around 7,000 that is located east of Montpelier. Jenkins was widely regarded as a kind-hearted individual who was beloved and respected by her students. At the time of her death, she was working at St. Johnsbury Academy and coached freshman girls basketball and soccer. So she's involved. Yeah, she was. She's one of those like, community members that like you'd know her. Yes, definitely, especially in a town that small. Mm -hmm. Yeah. She waitressed weekends and summers at a local restaurant in the nearby town of Danville, and she had been doing that for 18 years, which is very impressive to me because I was a a waitress for several years, and that shit is definitely hard. So Mm -hmm. I can't imagine 18 years of that while she's also a teacher. But Dedication. She definitely had to be a people person, I'm guessing. She could do it for that long. I yeah. hope so, because it would really be unfortunate if she wasn't a people person and she was in two very, like, public yeah. facing <laughs> Although I have known several teachers that are probably not people persons, but... Oh, 100%. <laughs> yeah. And her greatest joy in life was said to be her son, Ty. So, 
diving right into her disappearance, let's talk about the facts. On Sunday, March 25th, 2012, Melissa called a friend, letting them know that a woman called and had asked her to help a person who used to plow her driveway because his car had broken down. So during this call, Melissa let her friend know that she felt a bit uncomfortable with this request and wanted someone to know where she would be. That's why she called them. Okay. That's smart. Yeah. She even gave her friend this guy's phone number from his plow company's business card just so he would have that information, mm-hmm. which tells me that she kind of had some suspicion or uneasy feeling right off the bat. And just PSA, trust your gut. It's obviously not her fault at all. Yeah. But she definitely seemed like she was a, the type of person to go to great lengths to please anyone. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just That's you don't awesome. have to do that. It's also, I mean, great that she knew to, like, let a friend know, like, hey, I'm going to do this, but I'm feeling a little sketched out by it, so here's where I'm going to be, and here's the guy's yeah. contact. That's, that's like, um, taking care of yourself 101. So yeah, that definitely. is very impressive. I really wish that she had listened to her gut in the first place, because you're always right. Yeah. Like, you always know, and you should just listen to yourself. Be a bitch. It does not matter. Yeah. Just remember, you don't owe anyone anything. Exactly. You owe no one nothing. Moving on. So, of course, when this friend didn't hear back from Melissa, he started to become concerned. This friend went looking for her, and her car was found idling on the side of the road a short distance from her house with her two-year-old son asleep. Ooh. Yeah. So her two-year-old was in the car the alone. Yes. Oh. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. Oh, that something is wrong with that. Yeah. Obvious. You wouldn't just leave your kid on the side yeah. of the road. No one would. No. Yeah. So Melissa was nowhere to be found. And upon this discovery, Melissa's friend called the police, who showed up shortly after. The police attempted to talk to the two-year-old, who was not able to give them much information, you know, since he was a oh. literal toddler. Yeah. But the heartbreaking thing is he did say that his mommy cried and he pulled on the back of his neck as if to demonstrate what had happened. No. Yes. That's tragic. Yeah. I just got full body chills when you said that. Like, I'm not even kidding. All the way down to my feet. I'm tearing up. I feel like we've heard some pretty atrocious stuff on this podcast so far, and that that's the first time I'm, like, wiping actual tears out of my eyes. Yeah, it's just something horrible. So, There's something so disturbing about that. I know. Yeah. Um, Nope, don't like it. Mm -mm. The police found a hat at the scene, identified the phone number of the plow business to belong to a man named Alan Prue, and found his business card on a table in Melissa's house. Makes sense. Yeah. This evidence automatically made Prue a potential witness to, at the time, a missing person case, and police ended up interviewing both him and his wife Patricia in the early hours of March 26th about their whereabouts that day and any potential contact with Melissa. Mm-hmm. So this is so off topic, but every time I hear Patricia, literally all I can think of is Patricia! <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I had to get it out. <laughs> no, I was thinking that too. <laughs> the Prue's home, outbuildings, and motor vehicles were searched upon obtaining their permission. 
So as for the investigation, a few weeks prior to all of these events, Patricia Prue had reported instances of unauthorized use of her credit card to the police. Patricia and Allen actually showed up to the Vermont State Police barracks at 3 p.m. on the 26th, which is the day they were interviewed, so they actually appeared there again later, in order to speak with someone regarding their identity theft situation. <laughs> later on during the trial, Allen admitted that he and his wife had actually shown up to see what the police knew about the homicide. Yeah, that's pretty obvious. <laughs> That's so stupid. Why would you do that? These people are messy. They're just messy people. (laughs) Just going to put it out there. Just messy is probably the best way to describe it. Yeah. So this was obviously not the smartest plan. Right. Yeah. Because when Patricia and Allen got to the police station, they were offered cups of water. Know where this is going? Oh, I know where this is going. They ended up keeping the cups for DNA evidence. Uh Uh-huh. There it is. (laughs) Yum. And then, with Patricia's consent, because she's a dumbass. Established. Continue. They downloaded the contents of her phone. They're not going to find anything on there. How would they do that? None of these people have ever clearly taken a criminal procedure class. Like, you you never have to talk to the police. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. let alone let them, let them download the contents of your phone. Oh, my. This is definitely pretty bad, but it doesn't beat the people that literally Google how to murder people. We'll get into that. Or like how to dispose of, oh, okay. All right. I was foreshadowing. (laughs) Yep. I'm telling you, these people are, these people are just very messy. They're just rounding out the the part of stupid criminal activities. I love it. Let's go. So not only all of that, but the interaction was also recorded through a hidden camera and microphone. Nice. And this same day, Melissa's body was found on the Comerford Reservoir after police had noticed a wooded section along the road that appeared to have been disturbed. The following day, March 27th, Patricia and Alan were invited back to the police station to further discuss their identity theft situation. Invited is such a cute word. (laughs) Yeah, obviously that was all just a ruse to get them back in for additional questioning. They were separated, and during the interviews, Alan was reminded several times that he could leave whenever he wanted. The interview ended up lasting seven hours, though this did include some travel to different locations. Did he ever request an attorney? Uh, Not during the interview. No. (sighs) Just always request an attorney. Do you really think somebody who literally Googled... How to murder somebody is then going to be like, oh, I need an attorney. No. Listen, I spend 40 hours a week studying for the bar. It's kind of all I'm thinking about right now. (laughs) So let me live. A few hours into the interview, the officers started to confront Alan with information that they believed connected him to the murder. He ultimately confessed to strangling Melissa during this portion of the interview, saying that he strangled her when she got out of her car to offer help, and that Patricia jumped in to assist with the strangulation. Melissa stopped moving, and they put her in the backseat of their car, with Patricia choking her again on the drive back to make sure she wasn't breathing. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Allegedly, when they got back to their home, they took her clothes off, laid her on tarp, and poured bleach over her body. 
Ooh. What the fuck? Yeah. They then stuffed her body in the car and drove to a boat launch on the Connecticut River. There they weighed her body down with cinder blocks, dumped it in the water, and covered it with branches. We I need we need a second. We need a second. Uh, yeah. Okay. What does pouring bleach on a dead body do? Yeah, what does that, that accomplish? Literally nothing. Well, they think it gets rid of fingerprints or something because that's not how that works. Probably. That's they probably thought that. Yeah. They probably just thought like it was going to eat everything away. Because you know that's what bleach does. Yeah. Stupid criminal cliche pie chart is getting all filled in right now. Wow. Yeah. After all of that, they burned the tarp and clothes in New Hampshire. This was pretty close to the state line, so it wasn't a long drive. And when her body was discovered, there were multiple bruises and contusions. And court filings revealed that she was tortured, sexually assaulted, and electrocuted during this crime. What? Yeah. Oh, my God. You made it seem like it was just like they strangled her and that was it. No. I mean, oh my yeah. God, they, these were lady. horrible people. That's, that's really – Wow. Yeah. Dear listeners, I, I wish you could see Rachel's face right now. Electrocution freaks me out. I just don't understand. I don't understand how you could do that to another person. I think this was probably from – so I mentioned it later, but they ended up getting a stun gun. And I think that was probably oh. what that was from. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. that's I'll definitely talk about. Then. I'll talk about that in, in a little bit. But mm-hmm. a medical examiner confirmed – on the same day of the interview, March 27th, that the death was a homicide and a search warrant was executed at the Prue residence. So, I'm sure you are wondering what the motive was. Yeah, I have, I have questions. <laughs> I think we all do. Why Melissa Jenkins was uneasy about the call came to surface shortly after she was murdered and her body was found. It turned out that Alan Prue had plowed her driveway several years ago and had asked her out on a date. He had showed up during the fall prior to her murder to offer his services, but she declined. And one source says that he was drunk during that interaction in which he asked her if he could offer up his services again. Hmm. Yeah. So. So, so, so this guy's motive was that he was angry that she had said no to him. Was rejection. But, but. But I, I'm going back to the the how you get two people who are willing to commit a murder and, and put them together thing. How are you going to get two people who are willing to commit a murder? And one of them is your wife, who's willing to help you kill someone who previously rejected you. But you're married to him now. And he's still hung up about this. Well, the thing is, who knows what he told her? Because I feel like oh, a yeah, lot of the time... And like, I'm not saying I don't know anything about this case or at all, but sometimes there is some kind of abuse within the relationship. Um, so that can lead to it. That's a good point. I'm just like wondering, like, how how you get your wife to help you kill someone because you're mad at them because they wouldn't date you. Like, I, as a wife, wouldn't take that, obviously. Yeah. But I also wouldn't be aiding and abetting anyway. Well. It's interesting to hear where both of your heads are at because the rejection actually didn't really have to do with the motive, at least not from what we can gather with the evidence. So to to go back a bit, 
Alan met Patricia through online dating, and their relationship soon became serious after meeting in person. After marrying, Patricia wanted Alan to explore more sexually, since she was bisexual and had wanted to bring someone else into their bedroom. And that's when they looked to Melissa as the potential someone else. Oh. Yeah. That clears up a lot. Alan actually confessed to police that he committed the crime because he and his wife had engaged in three-way sex in the past, and they wanted to get a girl to play with. So this is the sex safe situation, I'm assuming? They were just, they were going to kidnap her for that? Like, Yeah, Alan claims that he never planned on it being forcefully, but that... Because she's just going to go with you after she's already rebuffed you. Yeah, that even doesn't... That claim doesn't add up. Um, Because if you're looking at their internet history, that paints a different story. Various searches from 2011 were conducted, including ways to kidnap a girl, how to kidnap a girl, and how to rape a girl and not get caught. You can't write that because it would come across as, like, unbelievable and not realistic. But they literally looked up how to rape someone and not get caught? Yes. Oh, my God. I just don't have words. (laughs) Yeah, I, I don't even know what to say. <laughs> yeah, they also got the stun gun and then video evidence showed them buying a burner phone from a store, which is the phone that Patricia called Melissa on that day. Yeah. Yeah. As for their trials, I'm curious about your guesses. Do you think that the Prus defended each other during their separate trials or do you think they turned? Uh, they turned. definitely turned. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. So the verdict in Alan's trial came following two weeks of testimony and six hours of deliberation. Both Patricia and Alan were convicted of first-degree murder, premeditated, conspiracy to commit murder, and attempted kidnapping. Mm -hmm. Alan was sentenced to life in prison and is ineligible to request parole until he's at least 82 years old. Good. His case was automatically appealed to the Vermont Supreme Court, during which he turned on his prior confession and instead stated that he was not guilty. He said, the only thing I am guilty of is bringing the person who committed the crime to Vermont. And for that, I'm truly sorry. So. Oh. And was like, uh, no, it wasn't me. It was her. Yeah. Very, very much a, um, I know you are, but what am I? Right. His defense essentially said that Patricia was the only one responsible for Melissa's murder. And they also explained that the evidence would show that it was Patricia who lured Melissa Jenkins out of her home and that it was she who strangled her because in her crazy twisted mind, she had become obsessively jealous of Miss Jenkins. They said that the evidence would show that she strangled Melissa without Alan knowing about it, planning it, or agreeing to it. However, the Vermont Supreme Court ended up upholding his conviction, so clearly the evidence was lacking. Yeah. During Patricia's sentencing, she apologized that it ever happened at all and stated, I want to apologize personally for the fact that my husband wasn't a strong enough human being to admit his wrongs and to be able to take his rightful punishment willingly. Burn. Yeah. I, as much as I hate Patricia, I love that she said that. I was going to say she's <laughs> not a good person, but that's a great line. It I is. wonder if she wrote it herself. I'm going to say that she didn't. Maybe she had like a really good lawyer. Probably, yeah. Based on, like, what we've seen so far, like, I don't think she has the knowledge to craft something so beautiful. I'm sorry. Maybe she had a really good lawyer who also has a creative writing degree. (laughs) 
<laughs> I wonder, do I know one of those? <laughs> so I didn't write a lot about this at all. I don't even think I included it in here. But Alan's argument was that his IQ was too low, essentially, for him to understand. Did he um, ever argue an insanity defense? She did. She did. Okay. Or so her defense wanted her to. So she was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Mm Mm-hmm. And her attorneys had requested delays so she could be evaluated for mental health issues and possibly go the insanity route, since she apparently suffered from dissociative identity disorder. Hmm. Okay. Wondering if either one of them pled not guilty by reason of insanity, because one of the elements of that is that you are unable to comprehend the illegality of your actions. Yeah. Which just seemed to be sort of exactly what he said. Yeah. From my knowledge, he never he never argued insanity hmm. from what I could find. And I read like the the case, but there were a bunch of arguments made like so during the the police interrogation, they read the Miranda rights at the two hour mark, I believe it was. Mm-hmm. And he essentially was saying that the way they read it also wasn't clear. And I think that's kind of where they argued with like it wasn't clear and also like his IQ was low mm-hmm. and like he wasn't really able to understand at that time or like pick up on it. Yeah. I just, it wasn't, it wasn't like a solid argument at all. Like the judge tossed it out. Yeah. But that's a pretty like standard um, bar exam hypothetical for like Miranda right violations is about like mental capacity of the person receiving the warnings and their ability to comprehend them. Yeah. A lot. I think his, they argue that his was at like 75, but I couldn't find if there was an actual test that was conducted. Um, So her dissociative identity disorder was diagnosed by a doctor who said that one of her alters was homicidal. She eventually took a competency evaluation at the request of her defense after she indicated that she wanted to take a plea deal requiring her to serve a life sentence, but it was found that she was competent. And in 2021, which is the first time we've had heard from her in a very long time, she wrote a petition of relief alleging that she had ineffective counsel, that she was under extreme stress, and that she could not aid in her defense at the time. Mm. Um, So I haven't heard anything about that, but... If it was filed in 2021, it's a little problem. Yeah, exactly. A while, yeah. But that's pretty much where the case ends. Teachers and students of the St. Johnsbury Academy, where Melissa worked, honored her by handing out pink ribbons for people to wear and by wearing pink, since that was a color she wore a lot of. A memorial service was held shortly after her body was discovered at the St. Johnsbury Academy with a whopping 1,400 people attending to mourn her loss. Whoa. Yeah. Yes, definitely was a community figure. Yeah. And there's only like 7,000 people in the entire town to begin with. So wow. on her obituary, it said that in lieu of flowers, donations could be made to her son, which I just had to include that part because it was so heartbreaking. And it was Stop. sent to it was sent to his savings account for when he was older. No. Yeah. Oh, my God. It all just shows how incredibly loved she was in her community and by the students whose lives she touched. So that was my case. I know it was, it was 
Christine, I know this is not like a fun podcast, but that was especially a bummer. Yeah. That was that was such a roller coaster. It, a uh, yeah. Yeah. Wow. There was one mention I didn't include, but her parents recently won where it might have been a while ago at this point, like several years ago, but so a news station had broadcasted her dead body, <gasps> like her naked dead body <gasps> on TV. Up. Yeah, and that was a big thing. And it wasn't like blurred out? Not that I could find. Like they just said what? they broadcast her naked dead body. <gasps> and her parents obviously won that. You know, like the, the Black Dahlia. Yeah. Those pictures are like published all over the place. And it's like that's that's a person. Mm-hmm. person who was alive and had family and friends and is yeah. now deceased and those pictures are like very easily accessible mm-hmm. granted that's a much older case but i guess it just goes to show that journalistic integrity is uh questionable yeah i was trying to figure out how to say it nicely but <laughs> i sometimes... think questionable is a nice word yeah I, I just think that some stuff doesn't need to be published yeah. oh for sure and that would be a really good example of something that should never have been published or made public but a lot of parents won. I know. Yeah. yeah. Me too. Okay. That was a lot. Maybe mm-hmm. like an hour to decompress from that one. <laughs> well, um, we're going right into Rachel's. <laughs> oh, I don't even know if I can like function right now. <laughs> like, I don't know why, but like that like really hit me because it, it, that felt like it was literally a Criminal Minds episode. Like, I swear to God. Complete right. with like the unsub who just does all the stupid stuff. All right. Let, let me reset. Okay. Take, take us a few drink. Let's. <sighs> okay. Hello, everyone. This is Christine popping in to let you guys know that we are aware that we have called Shalia, Sheila, mistakenly throughout the episode. But we're aware, just so you know, her name is Shalia Eddy, S H E L I A, not Sheila Eddy. Sorry, guys. Enjoy. Alrighty. So the thing here is that you're hoping that this is going to get better, but it's not. I'm just going to warn you now. This is literally about two teenagers that murdered another teenager. Great. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for the preparation. Lay it on me. Yeah, it's really tough. So this is the case of Skylar Annette Meese. So she was born on February 10th, 1996. So I know what you guys are thinking right now. Like she's our age. basically our age, yeah. Cause yeah. Well, I was born in ninety seven, but Chris was born in ninety six. Mm-hmm. Basically our age. All right, and she was the only child of Dave and Mary Niece. Mm-hmm. Mary worked as an administrative assistant for Cardiac Lab, and Dave was a product assembler at Walmart. Okay. So Skylar attended University High in Morgantown, West Virginia. She was an honor student. And she had a bright future ahead of her. She was a very hard worker. She worked at a local Wendy's and she never missed a day of work. She loved to read and she had a very active social life and constantly posted on social media, which social media plays a huge role in this case. So get ready for that. Okay. Skylar's dream when she grew up, like we all used to say, was to become a... I know. Yeah, right? Someone made fun of me for that like two years ago. I was like, when I grow up, and then they were like, Christine, you're like 23. I'm like, but I'm still not grown. It's like that TikTok where it's like, but I'm just a baby. (laughs) 
All right. So when she grew up, she wanted to become a criminal lawyer. Aw. But Mm. sadly, that opportunity was ripped away from her. Yeah. Because she never got to experience growing up. (sighs) Magic. I do hope she would have come to her senses and not gone into law, though. (laughs) (laughs) I guess a PSA for our listeners. Sorry. Yeah. I'm I'm, I'm just bar exam angst. Mm Mm-hmm. Maybe once you get past it, you'll have a different once I get opinion. It, I'll probably have a much better outlook on the practice of law. Yes. But for right now, angst. <laughs> Go ahead, Rachel. So the main people involved in this case are Skylar, as I just mentioned, and then her two so-called friends. I am using air quotes, just so mm-hmm. you guys know. Rachel Schof and Sheila Eddy. Um, and just so you know, I will probably refer to them as a trio just because I saw that a lot and it's just easier to say, or I might say like the girls, but I feel like using the girls is not the best term. So I don't know. Just let you know. Yeah. Yeah. So Skylar and Sheila had known each other since Skylar was eight years old. They were really, really close. Wow. So they met Rachel well, particularly Skylar met Rachel during her freshman year. They all went to the same high school. So the three of them, they were described as inseparable. Skylar played the role of emotional rock for the two other girls, her so-called friends, again, air quotes. Mm-hmm. And then this is just something I kind of found interesting. And I was like, what are the odds of this? So they were, all of them were only children. Which I really do feel like is really interesting because if you just take like three people and all of them are only child, like children or whatever, it's pretty uncommon. Take the three of us. Only one of us is an only child. Well, I'm the only child too, so I feel like you have step siblings. So like even yeah, but when I was like 21, I was already grown. Yeah, that was that was that doesn't really obviously it counts. Like they're still my stepbrothers, but like you didn't grow up with them. I know that's why I feel like it may have been kind of toxic to have three only okay. children. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. But like when I think about it, like me being an only child, like I know I definitely have a little bit of toxicity because I didn't learn like everything that somebody does with a sibling. So I feel like kind of putting all of them together could not be great. But I don't know. Could be like an additional factor. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's another one on top of that. Uh. <laughs> so uh Rachel and Sheila both of their parents had gotten divorced oh so that's another thing too is like later you'll find out that they started distancing themselves from Skylar and that's how it was kind of started and I wouldn't mm-hmm. be surprised if the divorce played a role in that yeah it's a really tough age no matter what and if your parents are getting divorced all bets that's are off even worse all right so Rachel Schof was born on June 10th, 1996. Again, our age. Yep. To Rust and Patricia Schof. Another Patricia. Patricia! <laughs> so Rachel Oops. grew up in Morgantown, okay. where they all attended high school. Rachel was described as the opposite of Sheila. She was well-liked and loved to be in school plays, Um, She also grew up in a super strict Catholic family, and she therefore idolized Sheila for her wild and carefree attitude. 
So to others, yeah. So to others around them, it kind of seemed like Rachel wanted to be able to let loose like Sheila, but yeah. her upbringing was was too strict. Feels for that. like a middle school nightmare in the making. I can definitely see this turning ugly. Yep. I already see this going downhill. So Sheila Ray Eddy was born on September twenty eighth in nineteen ninety five to Tara and Greg Eddy. She was born in Blacksville, West Virginia. Like I said, her parents got divorced in the year 2000. So she was only five years old. So she was definitely pretty young. She was young. But this is so horrible. The divorce happened after her father got in a really bad car accident that left him with a traumatic brain injury and a permanent disability. Oh my god. Yeah, that's horrible. That's tricky because I feel like your father being in a debilitating car accident is traumatic at that age and um and your parents getting divorced is probably also traumatic i yeah that is like a double whammy of bad news Mm -hmm. which like now that i like really think about it you will find out sheila has some serious issues yeah um i found her like described as literally like a sociopath sweet yeah but what a horrible childhood like that's gonna fuck up anybody yeah. But obviously, you can't feel bad for the adult then. But is an adult a 16-year-old? Not really. No. I would not say so. No. You can be tried as an, as an adult, but... I'm pretty sure she was. I think they both were. It's close enough where I Yeah, they were that, so but... close at this point. I'm pretty yeah. sure they both were. All right. So, after the divorce, Sheila's mom, Tara, had a really hard time providing for her family as a single mother. She worked as an accountant for a car dealership. And then October 2010, she got married to a man named Jim and they moved in together and Sheila joined. Okay. Okay. So that's just a little background on the girls just so you know who we're talking about. All right. So let's talk about their friendship. Skylar's mother, Mary, opened up about the relationship between the three girls. So, quote, Skylar thought she could save her, quote, and she was talking about Sheila in this instance. I definitely think, based on the stuff that I read, that Skylar had this I want to help everybody complex, mm-hmm. which I know that we can all relate with. So tricky mm-hmm. because you do, especially at that age, feel like you can help everyone. But if you haven't experience what those people have experienced it's really hard to help someone or empathize with someone who's been through something so traumatic Mm -hmm. all right other things that mary said so quote i would hear her on the phone given sheila all kinds of hell don't be stupid what were you thinking on the other hand sheila was so much fun she was always silly and doing crazy stuff sheila was known as the fun the fun-loving girl in the trio. Mary Niece and her husband accepted her and treated her as if she was one of their own. And they were on such a familiar basis that she wouldn't even knock when she came in. She would literally just walk in the door. Wow. That's that's big. Like, I've been friends with Rachel for 10 years, and she still texts me when she gets to my house so I can walk out and walk her in. And that's 10 years of friendship. It's mostly so you can help me carry my shit. Mostly so. <laughs> but anyway, my point stands. So I'm sure you guys are sitting here asking yourselves, like, what happened? Mm -hmm. They were really, really good friends, but obviously 
something happened to their relationship. Yep. As usually is the case. Yep. So over time, trouble started to develop between the girls. The tension between them became very visible to the people around them. Mm-hmm. A fellow classmate, Daniel, reported that Sheila and Skylar were fighting a lot. So one time sophomore year, me and Rachel were at practice for Pride and Prejudice, and Rachel had her phone up to her ear, and she was laughing. And she goes, listen to this. Sheila and Skylar were fighting, but Skylar didn't know that Sheila had put her on a three-way call and Rachel was listening in. Mm. Are we in Mean Girls? That's so mean. And also literally from Mean Girls. Straight out of the movie. Wow. I don't like that. I know. All right, so we're in 2012. So, of course, the drama was then taken to social media. Because it is really when social media was starting to really peer its ugly head. Yes. As I've seen my Facebook posts from 2012, and that that's all I'm going to say about that. Well, I feel like also everything was so new. People didn't understand that what you put on the internet was, like, forever. And yeah, that absolutely. it could be used against you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or just be downright embarrassing. I, I can't say I ever did anything that would be used against me, but it sure as hell is embarrassing. So now I'm just going to talk about their posting on social media. Okay. All right. So these are Skylar's tweets. So on May 13th, 2012, Skylar posted this on Twitter. You're a two-faced bitch and obviously fucking stupid if you thought I wouldn't find out. Hmm. Skylar tweeted again that spring, too bad my friends are having lives without me. Ouch. Yeah. So this points to... Sheila and Rachel becoming better friends and leaving Skylar out in the dust. Yeah. Before I get into the rest of the tweets, just so you guys know, Skylar went missing on July 6th. Okay? Okay. So mm-hmm. this tweet was on July 4th. Okay. So, like, literally just before she was murdered. She tweeted, It really doesn't take much to piss me off. Sick of being at fucking home. Thanks, friends. Love hanging out with you all, too. The day before... Her murder. Niece tweeted, you doing shit like this is why I can never completely trust you. Okay. Her last tweet was a couple hours before she went missing. And it was a retweet from a friend. She retweeted, all I do is hope. So she clearly wasn't in a great place. Yeah. All right. So these are Sheila's tweets. So again, remember, she went missing and was murdered on July 6th. So July 7th is the next day. Or technically, it happened kind of, like, early morning, like, the time. Overnight. In the evening hours. But this is, like, so, like, the next day. Like, the actual next day, yeah. Um, So, Sheila, of course, had to tweet as well. Her first tweet after the murder was her just, like, randomly tweeting somebody, like, happy birthday. Like, wishing you a happy birthday. Um, One of her friends. And then in the next following months after Skylar's murder... Sheila tweeted regularly about normal teen shit, watching TV, mm-hmm. going to school, hating homework, you know, the typical stuff that we look at that now and we're like, why did I write that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she even tweeted about her friendship with Rachel on November 5th, which I'm going to talk about again a little bit later, that says no one on this earth can handle me and Rachel. If you think you can, you're wrong. Wow. Edgy. Yeah. 
All right. So I just need a sip now because this is where things get tough. Shit goes down. Mm. Yep. All right. So July 6th, the day that Skylar went missing and was ultimately murdered. Yep. So on that night, Skylar snuck out of her house in Star City, West Virginia, via her bedroom window to meet up with Sheila and Rachel. Okay. Hmm, did you climb yeah. down a you climb down a tree or like a trellis or like what what cliche are we following here? I don't know how high up it was. I I honestly don't know because I saw like some places it described her place as a house and then some it described as an apartment. So then I was just like, mm-hmm. I don't know what this means. I wonder what they said to get her to leave and meet up with them. Yeah. Do you get into that? I don't get into like how they asked her but once i say like this one thing it'll make sense with with, with, for you okay Okay. (laughs) just Mm -hmm. like give me like two sentences (laughs) so they picked her up in a car the niece family had a security camera so it picked up when they picked up skylar which is comes into play later so it's the next day all right okay so skylar was supposed to work at wendy's and she didn't show up no call no show That was not like her. She had never done that before. She was very, very responsible. Skylar's parents were sure automatically that she did not run away. Mostly, not mostly, but this is a good hint. They just knew their daughter, which most people do, Mm. I feel like. She left her phone charger, toothbrush, toiletries, which like you would definitely need these things. I'm sorry, but in 2012, there is no way that a teenage girl would leave like, permanently without a phone charger. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't believe that. Yeah. I guess so. But if you did want to disappear, like, you could just buy one. Why would you, you bring your phone, uh, though? Wouldn't you just leave your phone? Yeah. Oh, you're saying she brought her phone but not her charger? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess so. So if she was running away, she'd bring her charger if she had her phone. You know what I mean? You'd think. Yeah. Unless you forget it like me. Well, you yeah. forget everything. Because so. I definitely well, would forget that. If I was run I would never run away, but if I was running away somewhere, I would definitely be the dumbass to like bring my phone and then forget my phone charger. I would. No, that you would forget it. You yeah. would. So the niece family knew that she did not run away. So they reported her as missing. Later that day, Sheila called the niece household. Just get ready for this because this makes my skin boil. So Mary niece, her mother, recalled this on the phone. She proceeded to tell me that her, Skylar, and Rachel had snuck out the night before and that they had driven around Star City, where they lived, and were getting high. And then the two girls had dropped her back off at the house. Mm-hmm. So the story was that they had dropped her off at the end of the road because she didn't want to wake up her parents like as Skylar was sneaking back in. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's fair, but... I don't buy it, obviously. Yeah. The girls claim that they picked Skylar up at 11 p.m. from her house and dropped her back off before midnight, which straight up lies because the surveillance video proved this wrong. (laughs) At 12.30 a.m., Skylar left. And then at 12.35 a.m., the car pulled away. Okay. So in the span of Mm -hmm. only five minutes, Skylar managed to climb out her window. She crossed the street. She'd gone to the back seat of this parked sedan, which is pretty good time. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was probably dark. She probably was booking it. I don't know. The idea of climbing out a window, even if it's only on the first floor, like, I, 
I would still fall. And then it would be this whole ordeal. Take me longer than five yeah. minutes. I'm not coordinated enough to do that in five minutes or less. Yeah, no. So like you guys asked earlier, how did they get her to go? They would normally go out for rides together and like go smoke weed. So that's what she figured was happening because they had done it so many times before. Yeah. Yeah, but I was just because they had a whole rocky relationship right immediately before this. Yeah, I know. So she wasn't suspicious. I mean, she was probably the type of person that would think maybe they would be trying to make it up to her and be just really, I feel like she probably just really wanted badly to be accepted back into the group. Yeah, that's what I was going to say is that like at that age, I know I personally, like if I had like kind of had a falling out with my friends and then they like called me up and were like, hey, do you want to go out tonight? I would think they were trying to make things right and I would go for it immediately. I wouldn't feel like I was getting set up. I would think that like they were doing a nice thing or making it up or, you know, like I wouldn't assume the worst. I would absolutely Mm. have gone. Right. Which is literally the worst because obviously this time was very different. Right. So even before they picked her up, Rachel grabbed a shovel from her dad's house and Sheila took two knives from her mom's kitchen. Smells like premeditation to me. Oh, there is so much premeditation, just you wait. They both planned ahead of time, obviously, and they came with cleaning supplies and they also came with clean clothes to change into. Oh, okay. Yep. This part is like so tough for me. So they were wearing sweatshirts. It was like the middle of the summer. It was July, so it was really hot, and it said, like, it was a scorcher that night, Mm. and I didn't, like, I forgot to look it up. I wanted to, but, so it was really hot, and they were wearing sweatshirts. They were wearing sweatshirts so that they conceal the fucking knives that they were going to use to murder her. That's just not... Mm. And, like, poor Skylar did not even think twice about it, and I don't know why, but for some reason, that part is just, like, I, I cannot... Wrap my yeah, because that. she should have no reason to distrust her friends to that regard. You know, like, it's one thing to think, like, oh, my friends hang out without me and, like, have that sort of distrust for your friends. But the fact that she would ever need to have the foresight to think that her friends were hiding knives on their persons so that they could kill her is horrifying and horrible. That's just something you would never think. Right, that's not anything you would ever expect your friends to do to you, so it's not something you wouldn't be like, oh, why are you wearing a sweatshirt? Oh, yeah, it's because she's hiding a knife. Like It's not a rational thought. No, it just it's isn't. not. And I, I bet if she said something out, out loud about, like, I don't know if I want to go with you guys, I feel like something could happen to me, they would tell her she was being irrational. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I just think, I think about me. So, like, I tend to run hot. So, like, I would not want to wear a sweatshirt. But then again, like, literally me and Kate were going somewhere yesterday. It was 80 fucking degrees outside. And Kate's wearing a sweatshirt. And I was like, what are you doing? Like, I probably would have said something. I just didn't want to put a bra on. That was it. Like, I'm not even going to lie. There was nothing more to it. You make it sound like I'm hiding a knife. I'm just going to Chipotle. <laughs> I was legit sweating my ass off in the car, and I'm looking over at We're in the car, and, and she's th- like, how are you not dying? And I was like, oh, no, I am. And I cranked up the AC. <laughs> <sighs> it wasn't my best idea, but it was fine in the end. All right, so they're in the car. They're heading northwest toward Blacksville mm-hmm. from Star City via... I just love saying that word, via, via, U.S. Route 19. So the original plan was to drive along West Virginia Route 7, 
but they quickly had to switch things up when they spotted a parked state police car in front of a gambling lounge, which I was just like, a gambling lounge? I guess so. (laughs) Like, do you mean a casino? Maybe like a small casino? Maybe it's different in West Virginia. West Virginia is another world. Yeah. It's another planet. We also need to consider that like everything's illegal in Massachusetts. That's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very true. So the world outside of Massachusetts, whole new thing. There's a whole world of sin out there that us Puritans will never know. Texas has drive-in liquor stores. So. What? They do? Yeah. Yeah, they have stores where you can just drive. Like, yeah, like a Chipotle lane, but for liquor. Wow. I... Yeah, isn't that crazy? Mm-hmm. So you don't even need to wear a bra. No, to get you your fucking alcohol. Stay in your car and exactly. <laughs> or get your oh. <clears throat> Vizzy hard cider. Not sponsored, wish it was. I've always wanted to say that. Like, not sponsored, wish it was. Anyway. All right. So when the girls arrived in Brace, which is a town right over the Pennsylvania line. Okay. They walked into, into some woods where they had previously smoked before. So Skylar was familiar with where they were. Mm-hmm. So once in the woods, Sheila and Rachel were like, hey, we forgot our lighter. Mm-hmm. And being like a good friend, of course. <sighs> yup, yup, I know. Skylar goes, like, to turn around to go back to the car to get the lighter. Well, mm-hmm. she's just so desperate for them to accept her back in. Yeah. Yep. Ugh. So once Skylar's back was turned, they counted to three and began stabbing her. Like, I'm not even exaggerating here. Once Rachel gave the go, which literally was on three, the two of them pounced and started stabbing her. So during this whole assault, Skylar did attempt to run away. She managed to get a couple of feet, and then Rachel tackled her. So I'm not 100% sure if this is accurate because they both ended up getting stabbed in the knee, which I just don't, I'm not sure how, like, really accurate this reporting is. So I just want to say that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So apparently... Rachel had stabbed Skylar in the knee so that she couldn't run far. And then I also saw that at some point during this kerfuffle, I just love that word, Skylar managed to get the knife and managed to stab Rachel in the knee. So that's why I'm like, that seems kind of weird. Yeah. So then Sheila continued to stab Skylar until there was complete silence. According to Rachel, this is how she described it, Skylar's neck stopped making gurgling sounds. Oh. Oh. My God. There could not be a more crude way to describe someone dying than that. Yep. Yeah, I know. Just wait, because this is even worse. Okay. Awesome. I saw your note in there about, like, what you were, what you said, and I had the same train of thought where I'm like, what is she thinking in this moment? Yeah. Skylar. Yeah. She's probably, like, just so confused. Yeah. So, here we go. After being stabbed over a dozen times, Skylar, like, literally managed to ask why. Which is just, like, so horrible, and it makes my heart hurt. And the worst is, not even the worst, but then, like, later, the officers asked Rachel, like, the same exact question. Mm -hmm. And she replied with, we didn't like her. 
See, that's just so crazy to me because I have been that age. I've had friendships that weren't great and probably weren't like healthy friendships. And I've had friends who I thought maybe at times didn't like me very much that ended up not being my friends later. But I've never had a friend who I thought would stab me. Nor have I ever even remotely thought I had friends capable of doing that to me just because they didn't like me. That is like a whole other level. And it brings me back to my point, like we were saying with the last case, how do you end up married to someone else who's willing to do crimes with you? What happened when these two girls were talking that they both realized that they'd be okay with murder? Right. There's a lot going on there. For sure. And obviously I like know all the information and like just what I know is making me being like, oh my God, you're going to freak out. When you hear when they agreed to do it, you're going to like literally fall over. Okay. I love falling over. I'm like not even kidding. So again, they said like they didn't like her and they pretty much have kept that this whole time. After this, the girls dragged Skylar's body to the side of the road where they attempted to bury the body, but they epically failed at this because the road was located right near a creek. So therefore, the soil was really hard and there were a lot of rocks and they weren't able to dig through it. Instead, they just cover her body with rocks, branches, and dirt. I just, it's so disrespectful. So half-assed done. Just, ugh. And then afterwards, they went to the car, they cleaned up, they disposed of their bloody clothing, and they both went home. Just whatever. Wow. Just sneak back into your house, go back to bed, act like nothing happened. It's crazy. All right, so now we move on to... Now we move on to finding Skylar, which I've talked about a little bit. So, of course, at first, police or, like, law enforcement considered Skylar to be a runaway because she was a teenage girl. So she's like, of course she's a runaway. Like, it doesn't matter. That's what they do. Because of this, like, an Amber Alert was not sent out, so nobody knew. Yeah. But, like I said earlier, Skylar's parents were on it. They were like, no, like, my daughter is missing. Like, we need to find her. They started posting posters of their daughter all around the county they lived in. So the niece family obviously started up a search. And even Sheila aided in the search. Mm. Gross. But at this point, Rachel was already at summer camp. Oh. And she would be for the next two weeks. Convenient. Yep. Nice. No, it was planned this way, which I'll get to later. Great. Yeah, she went to Catholic summer camp. Wonderful. As yep. she murdered a person, which is... Yep. So one thing I just want to say that FBI eventually came involved, and they came involved September 10th in 2012. I don't really know what prompted this, and I don't really know how they started with, like, okay, we have a runaway, to now we need to call in the FBI. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because obviously, like, there's a change of thought during that. Yeah. So rumors about Skylar's death began to spread. And I'm sure you're both like, this is what happens in small towns. Like, what else do you have to do? Tell stories. Spread lies. So it was rumored that Skylar went to a house party where she overdosed on heroin. Wow. Yep. What happened? Literally, like, she was a child. Yeah. I... Oh. It's not to say it doesn't happen to people that age, but it's definitely not what happened to her. No. So one of the investigators of this case 
Corporal Ronnie Gaskins reported that people had told him that she attended a party where she died. And then people had panicked and disposed of the body somewhere. But an officer by the name of Jessica Colbrink from the city police, the Star City Police Department, like knew in her gut that this was not the case. Mm -hmm. And she said their stories were verbatim the same. No story is exactly the same unless it's rehearsed. Everything in my gut was saying Sheila is acting wrong. Rachel is scared to death. Mm. And so she's like, listen to your instincts. Because, like, she was clearly right. Chris Berry, a state trooper who was assigned to the case. So he firmly believed that it was impossible for a murderer to hide what they have done for so long. Like, he was very familiar with murderers. Like, usually they would fess up or brag about it. Mm-hmm. And they weren't able to, like, keep it on the down low. So he really had a feeling that the girls would, like, crumble soon and confess. Right. So you guys are going to love this. So this genius of a man created a fake online persona. Oh, yeah. He catfished these girls. He catfished wow. them? Oh, yes. beautiful. He posed as an attractive teenage boy from West Virginia University and Morgantown. He connected with the girls on Facebook and Twitter. (laughs) And then another thing to note about social media. So investigators noted that Sheila was perky online while Rachel was reserved and quiet. Neither of them had even hinted that they were upset about the disappearance of their best friend. So (laughs) Sheila posted about like mundane things, just her classic teenager stuff. And she even posted a picture of her and Rachel together. And this is the quote I said earlier that she posted on November 5th. November 5th, And it was like, no one on this earth can handle me and Rachel. If you think you can, you're wrong. Yeah. So at this point, this like signified that they were starting to get anxious about like what was really going on because people were starting to talk on Twitter. And like at this point, cops like just didn't have enough evidence and they like really needed the confession. Mm-hmm. So throughout all of fall of 2012, they continued to investigate both the girls. Both of them had shown signs of lying. Like they were both like playing with their hair and they would avoid eye contact, which are classic signs of telling a lie. Mm-hmm. Sheila was even convinced that she could beat a lie detector test. Nah. They're not super reliable, but if you think you can beat it, you probably can't. That's mm-hmm. true. It definitely requires a skill. You're going to be thinking about beating it so much that you're going to have the symptoms of lying. You're going to have the indicators. Yeah. So again, authorities knew she was acting suspicious, but they couldn't charge her until they got a confession, which thankfully came on December 28th, 2012. So Rachel confessed. Basically, she had a psychiatric breakdown, like a literally psychotic breakdown. Like she was checked into a psychiatric hospital. Mm-hmm. I mean, I knew it would have to be Rachel. It made sense. I feel like with any crazy wild friend and then reserved to herself friend that just kind of wants to go along for the ride, mm-hmm. I feel like the crazy wild one kind of like ropes you into things mm-hmm. and kind of convinces you to do things. And obviously what she did is very wrong, but I can see her being like convinced of this and being obviously a horrible person, but then also just after it breaking down and being like, yeah. what did I do? Yeah. So – I, that's definitely 
I think what happened here. So on December 28th in 2012, her parents ended up calling the police department and said, I have an issue with my 16 year old daughter. I can't control her anymore. She's hitting us. She's screaming. She's running through the neighborhood. Yikes. Yes. So this was Patricia, Rachel's mother. And in the background, apparently you could literally hear like Rachel sobbing uncontrollably. And then to the dispatcher, Patricia said, my husband's trying to contain her. Please hurry. Yeah. So she was obviously completely like emotionally deteriorating. Mm -hmm. Um, Like I said, she spent the next few days in a mental hospital. And then afterwards, she called her attorney and confessed to the murder and said that Sheila also played a role in it. And when she confessed to police, like she literally blurted out, we stabbed her. All right. And this part is like what really kills me. So I talked about earlier how they planned this. So these girls planned this one day in the middle of science class. That's when they agreed to murder their best friend. In science class? In science class. So, mm. I okay, I know you guys probably know this story. Senior year of high school, Braley and I were lab partners in marine biology, fishes, birds, and reptiles. Mm-hmm. Where I'm going with this? Oh, the whale tattoos? Uh, sharks, thank you very much. Oh, the sharks, yeah. We joked about getting tattoos in class. Braley still brings that up. We both still bring it up, but it's one of those things that we never, ever will actually do. But I feel like that's an idea of the kind of thing, the kind of crazy idea you bring up during science class. And then when it comes up later, you laugh and say, what a stupid idea. We're never going to do that. Yeah. If Kate or Rachel, you were in my science class and you were like, "Uh Kate's really been annoying us. Like, let's kill her. I'd be like, what? I would be like, "Uh, yeah, no, you're fucking, you're crazy. (laughs) I'd be like, I I don't I'm know you anymore. What you're talking about? I go to the school counselor. Like I, you know, like yeah. But yeah, so that's what I'm saying. Is like the kind of stuff that you come up with, the crazy ideas you come up with when you're bored in science classes. Let's get matching shark tattoos when we turn 18. Not let's kill our friend because she's kind of being annoying right now. Yeah, like that is unfathomable. Oh well, it also like it just like it hits me because like my favorite class was always like science because I've always like really enjoyed it can't relate well Kate you're this great (laughs) writer and you're gonna be a lawyer so leave me alone so obviously kids around heard it because you can't miss it especially if someone's talking about murder right they thought that they were just joking so they didn't do anything about it yeah we just joke about murdering people on the daily like of course yeah just no. All right. So Sheila tried to continue to make it look like everything was normal, especially like on social media. So this tweet, I'm sorry, but it, it really hits me. And you will know why in one second. So she tweeted, staying home on a Tuesday is the best because Law & Order SVU was on all day. Bitch, you don't get to talk about Law & Order. And the only reason why you're home is because you committed murder. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I agree. That's 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 pretty terrible. It's like I get to stay home all day because I committed a murder. <laughs> LOL, I get to enjoy Judge Judy in the afternoons. Like, no. No, no, no. It's just so hard for me because Law and Order SVU, it's like 
literally has its own like personal area in my heart. And you just can't, you just can't act like that to Olivia Benson. Like I refuse. This is absurd. <laughs> he doesn't deserve absurd. to be dragged into this. All right. So even after the remains were found, Sheila tried to keep up appearances. Like she pretended to be devastated over the loss of her friend. She wrote, rest easy, Skylar. You're always, in all caps, be my best friend. Mm. And then it was accompanied by a photo montage of her and Skylar together. And the words read, worst day of my whole life. Sure. Yeah. Sure it was. That's the case. Between the day that Skylar went missing, July 6th, and January 16th, when police found her remains, Sheila talked to Skylar's parents every single day. Wow. Sheila called so much that Skylar's father, Dave, quote, thought Eddie, so Sheila, genuinely cared. Like, she would literally call, like, asking for updates. They, she helped put up posters. She helped look for Skylar in the first place. Yeah. I mean, she wanted to be involved in the investigation, clearly. It's gross. I mean, they do say that you should always look at, like, the funeral yeah. of a murdered person. Because people will insert themselves into the investigation because to keep an eye on it, basically. Exactly. Yep. So this was after Rachel's confession. In January of 2013, she took investigators to the woods where they buried Skylar. So at this point, the ground was covered in snow. And Rachel did not remember the exact location of her body. Initially, they couldn't find her remains. So they ended up leaving. But they were still able to charge Rachel based on her confession. Mm. But of course, I love this. They did their due diligence. And they came back a week later and they ended up finding Skylar's remains. So obviously, they were very decomposed. Not really identifiable. So they didn't know who it was at that point. But then on March 13th, In 2013, the U.S. Attorney's Office publicly reported that the human remains that were discovered in the wooded area in Brave, Pennsylvania, belonged to Skylar Neese. Her remains were found less than 30 miles away from her house. So how they ended up tying Sheila to the murder of Skylar was blood samples were taken from her truck. They matched to Skylar's DNA. And then following this discovery, they arrested her on May 1st, 2013. In a Crackle Barrel restaurant parking lot. Crackle? Did you say Crackle? I said Crackle. It's Cracker Barrel, Rachel. (laughs) (laughs) It's not Crackle Barrel. It's Cracker Barrel. You just, she just, she just typed it with an L in here. She doubled down too and was like, yeah, Crackle Barrel. (laughs) Like, yeah, I did say that, Christine. What are you talking about? That was amazing. <laughs> Crackle Barrel. Also, what a great place to get arrested. Yeah, seriously. I feel like I need <laughs> Cracker Barrel. I just think Crackle Barrel sounds better. Snap, Crackle Pop. I think Crackle Barrel sounds really funny because I know it's wrong. <laughs> I'll keep it in. Don't worry. Please do. I'm That's so funny. Embarrassed. It's fine. It's fine. We don't have that many around us anyway. You're going to be even more embarrassed when this is published to our tens of followers. Uh Uh-huh. All right. So let's get on to their charges. Because I know 
of course, Kate, the lawyer, is dying to hear this. And Christina's like, we need to get to the end. Let's go. Later. All right. <laughs> well, my wings are here and they smell really good. <laughs> so Sheila was charged with first degree murder. Mm-hmm. She pled guilty in January of 2014. She get a life sentence? Yeah, she did. She yeah. got a life sentence. Yeah. But possibility of parole after 15 years. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then Rachel was charged with second-degree murder and received a 30-year sentence. I do think some kind of deal was involved there because she did give the confession. Right. Yeah. I would imagine. Uh, yeah. That's really that what make, I think. Yeah. That would make the most sense. Yeah. All right. So this is a potential motive because, like I said, the only thing that they have given a reason for why they killed her was they didn't want to be friends with her anymore. They are bored of her. Like, that was it. Mm-hmm. <sighs> So, again, I don't know if this was true. So, Skylar was upset after witnessing Sheila and Rachel having sex together at a sleepover. So, yeah. (laughs) Oh. Okay. That would be alarming. So, they might have been worried that they were going to tell their secret. I I don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. People believe that they, like, had an intimate relationship. And, like, this was also found, like, in Skylar's diary. So, I... I don't know. So being in Skylar's diary makes it a little more believable, but doesn't mean it's motive. I don't know if it's necessarily motive. I just think it's like, yeah, I don't know. I think they just have like so much. I don't know. When I think about it, I feel like they had so much in common. Like they both had divorced parents and like, they were both like clearly like questioning their sexuality. Like they probably just were like, it's us versus the world. And like, I don't know. Hormones are nuts. Sure. Not that I could ever justify killing somebody, but I, like, just don't know how you rationalize this at all. Yeah. I think also that adds into the mix where Sheila was maybe more of the instigator in this and was kind of dragging Rachel into all of it and added on top of the friendship. There was also perhaps feelings involved Mm -hmm. and Rachel might have been willing to please maybe potentially her, like, love like the person that she loved yeah yeah so that also which wow it definitely um, it also like comes to play in like literally one second so where are they both now so they're literally our age yep they're obviously both in jail (laughs) Mm -hmm. they're incarcerated at lakin correctional center in west virginia they're literally at the same place which like i personally don't like yeah they're probably kept separate i would assume I don't know. I just, like, don't think that they deserve that. Like, no matter what, I don't care. Like, why do you get to be with one of your friends when you did you took away someone mm-hmm. else's life? Mm-hmm. So, again, I don't know how much of this is true. There's a lot of talk online that Rachel recently got married to another woman who was mm-hmm. believed to be another inmate at the same prison. But I'm not sure if she's an inmate or whatever. I am pretty sure, I think, at least, like, based on what I read, that she did get married, but just the name is not confirmed anywhere. Okay. Okay. Clearly, she ended up marrying a woman. And I feel like you're 16, like, you're questioning your sexuality, and this is, like, your first love. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It can feel very intense. Very intense. 
it's the first ever experience you have with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? Definitely. Like, your first love is always intense. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So let's talk about their parole. So Rachel's next parole hearing is scheduled to take place on May 1st, 2023, which Fine. is disgusting. Yeah. Great. And her projected release is for April 30th in 2028. No, that would be it's pretty soon. Not enough. I it's not enough time. Wouldn't imagine it would be that soon. No matter what. I don't know. I feel like sometimes people if they're good model prisoners, then they can convince people that they've changed. Or I don't know. Like she could have been brainwashed based on like what we've seen, we don't really know. So I don't want to, like, infer anything. Mm-hmm. Well, she also got the lesser sentence, so that was factored into the sentencing itself, was that she was lesser involved in the premeditation of it, it seemed. Well, that's also seen in, like... So, for Sheila, her next parole hearing is scheduled for May 2nd, 2028. Yeah. yeah. And then, like, the max she could receive is life. So, mm-hmm. if she doesn't have a projected release date. So, clearly... There's a difference between the two. Yeah. Try and end this with like a little bit of a good note. So Skylar's family was like very active after their daughter passed away, mm-hmm. which I'm going to, that's what we're going to end with. But now I'm just going to talk about their reaction to the girls in the trial. So David Neese, Skylar's father, said that neither of them deserved any leniency from the court system. Quote, they're both sickos. And they're both exactly where they need to be, away from civilization, locked up like animals, because that's what they are. They're animals, unquote. It's a good line. Yeah. And another thing, too, is during the whole court proceeding, Sheila refused to say anything except for to say that she was guilty. Mm-hmm. And obviously, like, this got to David. Like, her, he said that her silence was unacceptable, which, like, I agree. I would also be annoyed by the silence. But then on the legal side, I'm like, that's what you're supposed to do. But then you need to shut off lawyer brain and have compassionate brain for once. Mm -hmm. So David will occasionally visit a tree located in the Bracewoods in Pennsylvania, where his only child, the daughter he loves so much, was killed Mm -hmm. by two jealous best friends. That's so horrible. So this tree is decorated with pictures of Skylar. David said, I wanted to take the horrible thing that happened here and turn it into something good. A place that people can come and remember Skylar and remember the good little girl that she was. And not the little beast that they treated her like. So at least like the niece family was able to transform this wooded area where Skylar was found. Her body was found Mm -hmm. into a memorial. So what's really nice is that the wonderful things that the Nice family continued didn't stop here. So they were involved in the passing of Skylar's law, which requires the state to issue Amber, Amber Alerts for all children. Mm-hmm. So before this, Amber Alerts were only issued for kids who were considered kidnapped. Mm. Oh, okay. The reason why an Amber Alert was not issued for Skylar's disappearance in the first place One, a child is believed to be abducted. Two, the child is under 18. And three, the child may be in danger of death or serious injury 
And four, there is sufficient information to indicate that the Amber Alert will be helpful. Mm -hmm. A 48-waiting hour period has to occur because a teenager could be considered missing. Okay. Wait. Yeah, no, that does not make sense, I know. No. Yeah. they're missing they are missing (laughs) could be considered like running away or does it just mean like missing as like oh the parents don't I took it to mean like the parents just don't know where they are like oh maybe they didn't tell them that they'd be out with their friends Yeah. yeah I think that's probably what it means I feel like the best thing that came like from Skylar's law was like it pushed more reasons to issue an Amber Alert. Like, it shouldn't matter, like, what the circumstances are. If a child is gone, they're gone. You mm-hmm. might as well use the resources to look for them. Right. Yeah. So, at least, like, they got to contribute something. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So, that was my case. Okay. Some nice silver lining at the end there, I guess, that they got the law reformed. That's always yeah. nice to hear about people who their experiences with the law were unhelpful um, mm-hmm. and sort of led to a case not getting solved sooner or even at all. And are they're able to turn that around and change the law meaningfully. I, I like hearing about that stuff. So that that's heartwarming. The rest of the case obviously is horrible, but still nice to hear a little upside. Yeah, yeah I know. It's just that crazy. Crazy case. The idea yeah. of like committing murder at the age of 16 like, I mean, yeah, at any age, but... At any age, but especially at 16. Well, actually, I don't know about that. What? I don't know about that. I feel like it's less crazy to commit murder when you're younger and your brain isn't fully formed. Yeah, I agree. Okay, that's fair. Yeah, and you have, like, all those emotions. Yeah. Yeah, because at least, like, you can kind of, like, you can blame it on your, like, <laughs> frontal cortex right. like it's not developed enough and that's why they right. have less severe sentences because because their brains the implication is that you don't fully have the ability to understand what you've done right. and that you can reform yeah. yeah which is not i don't know i listen to a lot of true crime and i feel like at least most of the people i listen to do not reform they let them out and they just like do more shit but that's obviously yeah. not everybody yeah and that's also our system well, recidivism rates vary very much based on um, what type of crime. Mm. So that's, like, kind of a tricky thing to say for, like, true crime in general. Like, they usually recommit if they get let out because it's, like, it really depends on what the crime is. But Yeah, yeah like, the more severe crimes, you're less likely to less likely be reformed. To be reformed, exactly. And then also it depends on what programs are available in different states, because that's state law that governs the prisons, and some prisons have rehabilitative programs. So, like, I, I bet they would, I bet they were able to take college classes in prison. Yeah, I'd be interested to see the rates of recidivism by state. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the programs that each one has. But mm-hmm. uh, that's probably a rabbit hole I'll go through later. It's definitely a rabbit hole that you could go down. No, yeah. we could literally spend hours. Mm-hmm. Like, obviously. That's a whole other episode. The resources that we, yeah, the resources that we put into our incarcerated system are not good. This, it's That's just the bottom line. Wow, this was quite the episode. Yeah. <laughs> I, um, I feel like you need to go lay down. <laughs> I'm gonna eat some 
wings right now. Enjoy them. I'm so sorry <laughs> and, you had to wait this long. And and watch Only Murders in the Building, which is so applicable. Oh, okay, yeah, that that's the vibe. I'm gonna go play Fortnite. <gasps> nice. I want to play Fortnite, but I told Alice we'd watch Stranger Things. Oh, you gotta, Rachel, you gotta. That's a valid excuse. Yeah, it is. It is. I'm only in the first season. Yeah. <gasps> Yeah, you gotta watch that. I know, I know. This was a devastating episode, but well done, my friends. Um, I'll see you next week. I think I already have an idea of what case I'm doing for next week, so Ooh. hopefully I will have you um, captured in shock and awe. I'm sure you will. So Looking forward to it. See you guys. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Bye. Bye.